Terry, I want to begin uh, just asking you a few questions around uh, your early years. Uh, a lot of the guys uh, that are here are straddling uh, the dual responsibility of uh, leading their local eldership team as well as uh, serving and helping out other churches. Um, could you just uh, chat to us about some of the things that you did in your early days when you were carrying those two responsibilities uh, that both helped strengthen the local base but also trained up other leaders to, to serve in a more translocal manner? Okay. We started uh, when I was based in quite a small church, which made life easier in a sense, that uh, some of you um, are getting involved outside your church having built a substantial church, and so filling your pulpit is a bit more challenging. Uh, I started, in a sense, quite early with a small church and raised up other preachers uh, who could um, take Sunday responsibilities. Uh, most of my early church planting was midweek. We started house churches in people's homes midweek. So I would always take a car full of guys with me. Uh, so that was a discipling context in terms of the journey, the meeting, the journey back. Um, and then gradually, uh, I started being away on Sundays as well. So uh, it was building a good, strong team at home and then gradually getting guys who could go on my behalf to some of the churches I was visiting. So it was quite hands-on in the early days, starting up these house churches. I would be preaching in them once every other week. Uh, in some of those, and then once a month in some others. I was traveling around the county to about eight towns where there were small house churches originally, but praise God, most of them all are pretty big warehouse churches now. Uh, they grew through the hundreds gradually. Excellent. Uh, Terry, what would you consider some of the kind of key uh, growth moments uh, in, in the history of New Frontiers? So, it's, you know, it starts off with uh, churches in southeast of England, but then it, you know, grows nationally and then internationally. Were there, were there kind of key uh, trigger moments there or events that happened that you felt facilitated that growth? I think in the main, uh, I don't think I was very strategic. Um, I, I got drawn into situations one after another and very often being invited into one after another. Uh, one hardly had time to stand back and strategize, just trying to keep up with what was happening, in all honesty. I think probably the bigger um, breakthrough came um, when we started the Downs Bible Week, um, which was a summer camp where we already had that. It, England has the tradition of summer camps, like the Keswick Convention has been running for 150 years. So Christians are used to going to summer camps. What was different with ours was you came as a church group and you camped with your church and then there'll be several churches. So when we started, and Nigel was administrating it, uh, 2,700 at our first Downs Bible Week. Um, so that was mostly built on these house churches which had begun to grow. Um, some of them I remember starting like 15 people, 20 people. Uh, they began to grow through their hundreds, uh, and then we all came together um, for that week, and that gave us a bit of visibility. Then over 10 years, that grew to 10,000-ish. 
um, and that gave us visibility. And then actually, in terms of strategy, we were predominantly in southeast England, um, and we began to hear of other teams doing something similar in different parts of the UK. So we kind of respected that. There's a guy called Bryn Jones at one part, the people around London, others up in the northeast and other areas. Um, and so we thought, well, well, this is our pad down here. Um, and we were getting some contact into Holland, and all British school children learn French. Uh, so we thought maybe we should be praying about continental Europe. Um, and that's going back many years now, but we wondered, is that the way we should look? And then I was praying one day, and I saw, I saw a picture of the uh, a vision of the map of the UK, uh, like just the map, and over the southeast was imposed a bow and arrow, and the bow was pointing outwards, kind of overlapping that southeastern corner, which is slightly bow-shaped anyway, and the bow was superimposed over it, and the arrow was pulled back on the map as far as London which was as far as we were going, South London. And in my uh, spirit, I could see that, that, that this arrow is not going to go very far. If you only pull it back, it's not going to go far. You need to pull it right. I felt God impressed on me. You need to pull this right back across the UK uh, in order to go on world mission. And I felt what God was saying is you do need to get involved beyond the southeast into the UK. And that was a strategic thing. We need to get involved. And it happened that about that time, there was a bit of an economic push on the southeast, and some firms were moving <coughs> their people away from the southeast. I asked a guy called Colin Barron, would you research for me? He was a pastor in the southeast. Would you research for me? Where are these people going? Can you ask the pastors? And he came back to me after some weeks. He said, it looks like Manchester is the main center. Most of them are going to Manchester. And then he said, actually, I feel God's calling me to go with them and plant into Manchester. So that was for us quite a major move for a guy to move right I know England's a tiny island, but for us, that was a major move to go right up. And then David Devonish felt he was involved in just northwest of London to move into the Midlands. And so this whole thing of pushing into the nation uh, was brought home. And our Bible week, which had been very much in the south at a racetrack, a place called Plumpton with a circus tent. We moved that into the heart of the nation uh, to what was called Stonely. And at Stonely, which is a very big agricultural showground, uh, much more purpose-built, we could use. Uh, the, we started there for another 10 years, and it started around 10,000, and it grew up to 28,000 over another 10 years. That gave us more and more visibility. And what I hadn't realized until virtually the end, I think, when we, when we said we're going to stop it, that a, th a third of the people who came were not with New Frontiers. We, we were getting visibility in the nation, and people wanted to come uh, to, to our Bible Week. But that, those were breakthrough times that gave us visibility in the nation. On the back of the worship, we kind of incidentally recorded it. Uh, we did that at the Downs originally, the cassettes. And then when we went to Stonely, it began to produce some quality. We had some good musicians in our, in our midst, a guy called Dave Fellingham, who wrote early on. Um, and then Stuart Townend was with us, a guy called Paul Oakley. We were getting some great songs coming through. And then the, the album every year, um, 
it was a, a live worship album with you know fifteen thousand each week. <coughs> it went, went to two weeks. Um, it just went when it came up public. It went straight to number one uh, in the Christian music thing, and it gave us visibility. And then they published um, a, Christ, uh, a music book on the back of it. So every year, the Stonely album and the Stonely book came out. Uh, uh, we didn't publish that, and another firm did it for us. Um, and it became, it gave us a lot of visibility, a lot of visibility. I was once in Los Angeles, and I was, uh, uh, I was, I was years and years and years ago, and I was, uh, I went to a Christian bookshop, and I could hear our music playing in there. And then I went to a vineyard. I was in a church for a holiday. I looked up in the yellow pages. Oh, there's one's a vineyard just around the corner. I went to the vineyard, and they had a coffee break. And a guy came up to me, oh, you're from England. He said, uh, do you know a group called Stoneway? <laughs> so I said, no, I said, I don't, I don't know a group called Stoneway. And he said, oh, they're a great group. I said, oh, no, honestly, I didn't, I, I don't know. And he said, and then he, and then he quoted one of Paul's songs. I said, oh, I said, he said, they publish an album every year. It's wonderful. So, I, and then I, ah, oh, so it was Kingsway who did our thing, and we're Stonely, so he put it and made Stonely. So, I mean, the music gave us a lot of visibility, the, the, the worship, and so I think we were getting more visibility within the UK, and then the music was taking it further afield. So it grows from uh, southeast to the UK and then uh, globally uh, into different parts, uh, South Africa, Zim, India, US, uh, Australia. W w what do you feel like some of the, were the key ingredients that kind of helped keep that kind of global uh, movement together? Because obviously it, it, it then spreads very wide geographically. I think that relationship has always been at the heart of what we've done. Um, I was in this conference in Poland two weeks ago, and the title I was given, Creating a Church Planting Movement, was the title I was given to speak. Um, and I, I just challenged it. I said, how do you create a movement? What is a movement? Um, and I said, actually, we just we kept moving. It was never in my intention to create I mean, I said, how do you create a movement in the body of Christ? Uh, what, what is that? And Because uh, I, feel, I feel that in the end, biblically, Jesus mentions the word church twice in Matthew's Gospel. I will build my church, the universal, historic church, wherever they are, through the centuries, through the nations, through the so-called denominations, the church of the living God. And then he said, if you've got problems, take it to the church, which is obviously the church where you live. And I think those are the two biblical concepts of church, the global church and the church where you live. I think that's the only kind of church you can justify. So what's a movement in the body of Christ? And uh, so when we first get in going, I thought, I, gotta, where, where, I want to be biblical. Please help me be biblical. And then I looked at this where it says, Paul talks about this is our policy in all the churches. I thought, what's all the churches? And I, and I look and it says, the churches in Judea that don't know me. Oh, so that all the churches isn't all those churches then. So you realize he's, he's got churches he works with. Well, of course, what the theologians who got there first call it the Pauline churches. The ones he has planted, he works with. And I, I think that's a biblical concept. And so I can, I can defend that position biblically. I'm not going to create a movement, whatever that is. 
or create a network, whatever that is. People play golf and network. You know, what's a network? Well, it's whatever you make it to be. You don't have to use biblical terms. It's out there. But if we're trying to stay biblical, you do see churches that work together or at least had relationship with Paul and the team of guys he worked with so that, for instance, when he's at Ephesus, it says that the churches in Colossae and uh, Laodicea, uh, maybe one other there too, Hierapolis, they were planted and Paul was staying at Ephesus. So probably Epaphras went from Paul, planted that church, and, and Paul writes to the Colossians, says, Epaphras is with me. He, he says, I've never seen your face. So Paul had never been to Colossae, but it was a church within his framework of fellowship. So I think that's a biblical concept of, t- of churches that are together in an apostolic framework of relationships, and it's, and it's very relational. Uh, so that... That's the very missing ingredient from much that is church. It's, it's the non-relational. Even if people belong to networks, it can be very non-relational. They don't know anybody. They're on a list. And so for me, we've always been relational. It's all grown. Friendship, friendship, friendship all the way. And, so, and we've always only related to people when we've got to know you and so on. So it's been a relational deal uh, of comradeship and friendship that goes over decades. So that, the guy who runs this conference in Poland, a man called Greg Pritchard, American, comes from somewhere near Chicago, and he hosts this conference. Um, there's 750 there. John Piper did the morning Bible studies. Um, Wayne Grudem was supposed to be there, but not very well. Uh, other people there, Mike Reeves was there, Mike Green, Michael Green was there. I mean, it's an, a key conservative evangelical conference but I met this guy in London last year. He just phoned me out of the blue. I didn't know who he was. Would I speak at his conference? And he said, I, I had a meal with him up in London. And he said, I have never, I've met some of your pastors. And I, I thought, he said, I've never met, and I thought, here we go again, charismatic and reformed. And he didn't say that. He said, I've never met people who talk about one another the way they do. He said, they're all friends. He said, I've met them in different places. He said, they all talk about one another as friends. He said, how does that, how does that work? What is that? So I talked to him about you know, the way it's all grown, relationally. And he said to me, it's a fascinating conversation. He said, I would like to put you on a platform in front of hundreds of pastors and ask you questions. He said, so many pastors are totally alone. And he lives in the States, but he runs this European conference. But he said, that would be true in America too. They're completely alone. He said, your guys are not, are they? So, I mean, I think it's because we started, t- we started tiny and we're all friends. And then, and then, I mean, it's happened. We went to India, was the first overseas, 1979. A, a guy who'd been out there 13 years and was now related to one of the churches we were now working with in the UK, came home and he said, would you come and look at what I've done? I'm just not quite sure. And I went out, and the people I liked, they were really warm. The elders were out of step with one another. The elders' wives, I think, hated one another. <laughs> so he said, would you be involved? And so I said, I said, if all the elders will stand down, I'll get involved. And they said yes, which amazed me. So they all stood down, and a guy called Henry Tyler, who was one of our team in Brighton by that time, a mature pastor of some years, he and his wife 
went out there for, I don't know, six months or so, and looked after them and brought through fresh leadership. And that was our first step into India. That was called Living Word in Bandra in what was called Bombay. They planted out Living Hope, Living Light, Alex. You worked there, Borivli. And uh, different churches we planted out from that one. And now there's about 40 or 50 churches in India. But it all started from that one. And now, I mean, that's happened in Mexico, Guadalajara, one businessman linked with Don Smith's church in Hastings. Would you please come? We went. And, and now from that one church, about 23 churches in Mexico. And then down into South Africa, the one church where Steve now leads, where Simon Pettit was. It was just, just I think it was about 100 strong when Simon went down with a guy called Graham. Be it 100 wrong? Maybe a bit more? But that, so what we've done, done there's all grown out from there. So all of it's grown kind of relationally. It's all friends. They're friends with different people. Terry, in terms of the relational side, so that was a real strength of New Frontiers, and obviously you've um, spoken and been connected with, with other networks or, or, or movements where that hasn't been a case. Are, are there some things that you think... Uh, you can do to help facilitate that friendship that, that you did within New Frontiers that you, you felt cultivated that and other things that you saw in other contexts that you thought actually that really shuts down that camaraderie and, and, and genuine friendship? Yeah, I think, it, again, it starts... Everything, I think, has to start from something authentic at the centre and the heart. Um, so when, when I first started in the little local church I started in, all the elders were slightly kind of out of step with one another a little bit. I went fresh from Bible college. I'm in my 20s. They're in their 50s. Uh, you feel a little bit lacking authority. and all. So um, elders' meetings, you know, you differ on subjects. So I said, look, every time we have an elders' meeting, can we have a meal first? Um, which was kind of radical, one meal. So we went to the different elders' homes. Each elders' meeting was a different home. We had meals before we had the elders' meeting. So you're not just talking about subjects you all differ on. Having a meal first, talking about all sorts of stuff, and then go on. So it always started like that. Also, when I was saved, um, I went to a really super Baptist church, in as much as the pastor was a great preacher, 800 on a Sunday, um, you know, a pumping church in that sense. But it said on the wall, do not speak in the sanctuary. Literally, do not speak in the sanctuary, because the sanctuary is kind of the holy place. And so none of the one another things can happen. Literally. So I come out of a pagan culture with all my friends I've been with like for five years since I was, I don't know, 14 or so, whatever, living a really ungodly life where you talked about everything and anything till the middle of the night. And you come into this city of the living God and no one talks to anybody. Uh, I mean, you couldn't. You're not allowed to. You shake, you shake his hand at the door and go home. I mean, I remember R.T. Kendall told me, that when Louise, his wife, was at Westminster Chapel, and when they were early on there, she went to greet someone in the chapel and was told off for talking in the chapel. So, you, you know, you, you have these great preachers like Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, but don't talk in the chapel. So all of that, those 40 one-another verses, encourage one another, pray for one another, confess your thoughts to one another, admonish one another. I mean, there's over 40 of them. You're not doing any of them, none of them. So when we started meeting in homes, all that formality goes out the window straight away, straight away. So you don't go and sit in the back row in someone's home. You know, you're there. 
and it's immediately first name terms. All that goes out the window straight away. And then when God began to show us grace and preach grace, that it's not legalism, it's not under law, it's not religious, it's, it's Holy Spirit felt. So a culture began to grow in our midst, which when and somebody said to me years ago, well, your churches are different. And I said, well, we started in homes. Oh, no, no, I met one that's in a hall. It must be 300 strong. But what he was saying, that culture that started when we were small grew. So the culture of friendliness. So, I mean, even when we did the handover, Mark Driscoll said, Terry, find someone to replace you. But the reality was that would have been, that would have created a formal context where people who, who is this guy who's replaced Terry? We don't know him. Whereas I could take you to Guadalajara and introduce you to, you know, Eduardo and Pedro and all the guys I've known for 20, 30 years. Or I could take you to Bombay, introduce you to guys, all Christian name friends that I've had for years. And you put someone up there who doesn't know any of these guys. So instead, we've said, no, let's release the guys who know and let them build their bonds of friendship. So you don't have a formal leader of this organization. It gets into something very formal organizational, almost denominational. We need relationships based on anointing and gifting, trust and affection, genuine. So it multiplies out rather than... So I think we're trying to avoid anything that's just nominal. If it's nominal, you've lost it. And even people, as we've gone to several teams, some guys have said, oh, I'm with him. Oh, no, actually, I think I'm with him. No, it's better for him to, to go with him because they're, they're there from their heart. They're not being placed here where I didn't want to be anyway. They're where, they're where their convictions lie. I want to be with him. So now, you know, if I've got a problem with him, it's my problem. I need to talk it through, fellowship it through, that we can stay together rather than, well, I joined this. I don't know. We go to conferences once a year. I'm on a list somewhere. They send literature through. I don't really know anybody. That, to me, that's the danger of what sometimes get called network. Because this relational factor, which is so strong in the New Testament, I mean, you just spend time in the epistles, it's all relational, it's all personal. My dear brothers, my longed for, my joy, my crown of rejoicing. You know, it's all personal. It's very, very foreign to modern church life. And that's why, to be honest, even, if I can say this, even to be charismatic and reformed is not enough. Because you can be charismatic and reformed and in that stuff. You know, so what we want is family. The church, the New Testament church is incredibly relational. Incredibly. It's a family. It's God's family. So all these, these phrases, you know, my dear ones. In the, like, if you stand, I'm okay. If you fall, I collapse. I hurt. It matters to me. It's not formal. It's not a career thing. It's a life. And so that's a huge part of what we want to build, and it's very foreign. And I think the re restoration of New, New Testament Christianity is still high goal. I think sometimes people think, oh, we've done restoration, now we're just in it. No, 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 we've got to restore the culture of New Testament Christianity, which is pretty foreign in lots of places. Terry, uh, since we've been here, we've uh, heard stories from uh, several different places where folk have uh, been a part of something that then has uh, kind of turned sour. It's been painful and difficult. And there's an uh, emerging generation that's very nervous of being a part of anything. They kind of feel it's safer just to kind of be independent and 
You can drink from different uh, streams and kind of copy and paste as it suits the local church. What would you say to somebody, uh, uh, an eldership team that's kind of in that place? I think that there's, there's still sin. Until, until Jesus comes, there's going to be failure, and people will hit failure, and you have to respond to failure. Uh, now, you can either just walk away or you can work it through. And I think that, you know, that happens. You know, marriages fail. People walk away. Uh, people leave churches. I don't like this church. I walk away. I think that can happen on a grand scale or a local scale. But I think that you don't throw away biblical principle if you're convinced of it. So you do what you can to work through uh, relationship. But, uh, yeah, I know that, that obviously we, we're all vulnerable. We can, we can see... Uh, that fail, but I honestly believe we're meant to build relationship, and uh, that takes time. And a lot of the re- the one another things are negatives, like don't lie to one another, <laughs> don't bite one another. It's a good one. <laughs> there's there's a lot of, lot, lot of you know a lot of negative. Don't do this to one another. And I think that, and, and it, it doesn't mean you know because one another is going to be there. It's not like, so there's no one another. Walk away. We don't have any one another's. There's the negatives as well. Don't, don't lie to one another. Don't, you know, don't, it's, it's all there, negatives and positives. So you, but you're going to do it with one another because that's the church. So I think that we have, we have to keep working at it. And I think, I think all the time, vulnerability, that any danger of formality, I think the danger also of being locked in only to yourself so you can become like a cult. You know, I think over the years, we've always had people come in and speak who are from other, other parts of the, you know, <laughs> we took the risk of asking Mark Driscoll. You know, we've asked people in. <laughs> we've always done that, always. So that what we're trying to say is we belong to the whole body of Christ. It's essential, absolutely essential. Paul says to Corinthians, all are yours. You know, when they're beginning to name guys and say, I'm with him. Now, all are yours. And then he goes crazy, isn't it? The world, <laughs> everything's yours. Um, so we want to keep that breadth, keep that breadth, keep on, uh, kept all over the years, recommend this book, this book. But we didn't write it. I know we didn't. This book, read it, read it. Hear this guy, he's brilliant. So we honor the whole body of Christ so that we don't get incestuous and only hear our own speakers. That's important. And then also, we don't just clone people you know, the, the, the leaders got everything together, and all, we all just clone him. That's not the deal. We need one another. We need the, the gifts that different people have. We need team. It's not team isn't just a way of reproducing the leader so you can all be cloned. Uh, the, the, the guy leading needs, I, for me, I could never have done anything without team. Uh, you know, I see Nigel sitting here. It's impossible to have done what we've done without guys who go back years and years and years and years. And the bigger it's got, the more we need people who are really... I always felt when... It says in Corinthians, Paul says, um, I don't say this to shame you, my dear brothers. And then he said, I'm sending Timothy, my beloved son, who's faithful, who knows my ways. And I was just reading that, and I thought, gosh, that's what, G- that's what the father did. I'm sending my beloved son. And that, I think that's biblical. It's not, I'm sending this guy, he also believes in the Heidelberg Confession. You know, it's, I'll, I'm sending my son. He knows, he's worked with me. 
He'll, he can represent me properly. And if Timothy comes and says, I don't know what the old fool wants, but this is what I would do. <laughs> you just lost it. You just lost it. And if I can say reverently, if Jesus had done that, everything's lost. The whole thing is built on love and trust and wanting to stay faithful. Then you build a culture, not just an objective theology that we all agree with. So that's what I met in Poland. And that's what you can meet in that. Sorry, I'm going on a bit. But it's good. when it's interesting, Lloyd-Jones was a great hero of mine, amazing man. He was invited to speak at the Evangelical Alliance in England back in the 60s. And he said, don't ask me, I'll cause you trouble. And they said, no, we want you to speak, we want you to speak. So he spoke. And at that time, the president of the Baptist Union didn't believe in the deity of Christ. You had one of these weird Anglican archbishops. And all, you know, Methodism was all over the place. And Lloyd-Jones spoke and he said, all of you leave these mixed denominations. Let's become evangelicals. Let's be the body of... Let's get out of these... And, and some did. Some left the Anglican. John Stott stood up immediately afterwards, who was chairing the meeting, and publicly disagreed, and said, Anglicanism, the 39 articles are evangelical. We'll fight for the Church of England. And so oop, you got this collision of the two biggest names in the UK at that time. But people did leave, and the so-called FIEC began to grow, the Fellowship of Independent Evangelical Churches, the FIEC, got about 600 churches in the UK. But tragically, Fellowship of Independent Evangelical Churches, and at their heart is independence, and at their heart is, uh, no, we don't identify, we believe this. So right in the in their DNA is independence. It's right in their DNA. So you know, they don't do anything together. <laughs> so they had, they had John Piper over to their conference a few years ago. They got, I think, about 2,500 people to it, and it was a great success. And then I was invited to speak to their council. I mean, that's how things have changed in the UK. We used to be the enemy. Now, a lot of ground's been gained. I was invited to speak. And John Stevens, who runs the thing, said to me, heads are down a bit. Um, so I said, why is that? He said, we just had to cancel Piper coming for this year. So I said, I heard it was great. Why are you? He said, we can't afford it. He said, if we invited him, um, I, you know, it would just bankrupt us. We can't do it. So he said to me, is that why you closed only? I don't know. When we, stowed, we, <laughs> when we closed Stonely, our offering was over a million pounds. They said if we did it again, it would bankrupt us. Our people are in. They're in with their money. They're in with their whole heart. We're on a mission together. We're going. He can't call for that. He can't because they're independent. That means they're not committed to anybody. They're just committed to home church. And so independence... I mean, they tried to do it together. And he said, well, you have regional guys. Perhaps we could do regional guys. They don't understand. They think, well, we can put someone over that region. It doesn't understand. No, these are relational things. People love that guy. They follow him anywhere. They've given their heart. The Old Testament thing, it says, men came over to David and said, we're yours, O David. We're yours. And, it, and, uh, and Paul says, they first gave themselves to the Lord, 
and to us. That's Pete, you're in this room because PJ's in this room. Otherwise, I don't know what you're playing at. You know, there's a heart link. There's a heart link. If there's not a heart link, it's a network. But when there's a heart link, you think, no, I follow, the, I follow these guys. This team of guys, they've got my trust. I feel safe with them. If that's not there, we're missing a vital ingredient. And for some people who really love the Bible, and like the guys I was with last week, their bookstore was second to nothing. Phenomenal. Tremendous guys. They read great books. Tremendous. The lectures were brilliant, the seminars. But this ingredient of giving your heart to people is kind of foreign concept. They're scared of it. But it is biblical. It is biblical. And uh, so we build a relational thing. And without the relational factor, there's something biblical that's sadly missing. And it goes right back into Trinity. The whole relational, it's, re it's reflecting love and loyalty and desire. And, you know, you can think of Paul in Philippians 2, you know, this is the life. You know, I want you to be one mind and one heart. And there's, look, there's Jesus, the model. There's, there's Timothy. He's not looking after his own interest. He's just got you. There's Epaphroditus in that Philippians 2. It's like these guys, they risk their lives for you. It's, it's all relational. The New Testament's thoroughly relational, and it's completely missing in some of these settings. So we've got to fight for it. Great. Final question. A um, lot of younger guys uh, in the room, as you look across the kind of broader Christianity, uh, what are the things that excite you about the next generation? What are the things that concern you? And are there any blind spots that you think we've got? <laughs> From where I'm sitting, everybody's young. <laughs> I, love, I, love, I love it when Paul, Paul says to Timothy, let no one despise your youth. And if you look at the commentaries, that's 2 Timothy, that's his latest... So, Probably Timothy's about 40, okay? So all you 40-year-olds, don't let anyone despise your youth. Yeah. <laughs> it helps some here anyway. Um, yeah, I honestly think we've got to work hard at being biblical. And um, it's strange how things come in suddenly that, that people are not careful to say, well, is that in the Word? And, uh, and I think you get fads that come through the body of Christ over the years. All kinds of fads become hugely popular, and uh, everybody gets on it. And if you wait, hang around a bit longer, it's gone. I, I think we need to be work very hard at being biblical, uh, because there are things that come and go. I mean, I don't know if you've read Andrew's comments about Bethel, for instance. I'm, I'm sure that will go viral, as the phrase is these days. Um, you know, I think... It's interesting because he will also get hammered for being open-hearted because some people don't want you to be open-hearted. But he's also very thorough. So the, if you don't know what I'm talking about, I'm sorry. Andrew Wilson wrote a blog this week. Um, ten points of where the Bethel Church, which is getting a lot of uh, influence, is theologically wobbly. Ten points where he applauds them. That's very, un very, very unusual for anyone to write like that. And Andrew scores, big score, because his, his heart is so lovely. And yet his mind is pretty sharp, to put it mildly. So I think yeah, we've got to say, look, that is not biblical. We've got to be clear. Got to be clear. 
But I think that generosity that says, all right, so that's a strength. Handling those, that balancing that well, I think is very challenging. And, uh, and we've got, I, I, I do applaud Andrew, the way he, he works in that. He's got a brain that retains loads of facts. He can say real detail, nail facts down, uh, and yet say, hmm, uh, well, this is, this is plainly wrong, or this is, this is helpful. I honestly think generosity, see, we were, we were hit so hard back in the 80s uh, publicly, there were books written. I mean, I've read magazines that say, you know, Terry Virgo's leading a cult. Um, this group that committed suicide in South America, the Jones Jonestown massacre, whatever it was, they all went and committed suicide together. I've seen in two different Christian magazines Terry Virgo leads a cult like that. So, you know, if you're you know, they don't come inside, as we heard earlier. Don't, don't come and ask questions inside. Just make statements. Now, I don't want to be like that. And, and in the mercy of God, a lot of the people who wrote things like that have turned around as the years have gone by and become much more open-hearted. But why not be open-hearted from the beginning? So I think we want to be clear and not drift. So I think gender issues are huge. I think it's going to be a problem into the future. I thank God for Sam Albury and these brothers. Uh, he's become a good friend. And uh, he's written, is God anti-gay? He confesses to same-sex attraction. He's clear that God's against it. He's never going that way. But he's put his head up and said, look, okay, I've struggled with this for years, but I'm never going there. I'm never going to make an excuse for it. I think the gender issues seem to be big and I think they'll continue to be big. I think the church may get very persecuted on it. Um, so I think this we just got to hold, hold a good line, help our people to think clearly about gender. I think those are big things, be biblically clear. I think also in our passion to grow and be evangelistically successful, not to abandon things that we hold dear in terms of enjoying the presence of God uh, the presence of God is what will make us successful. So getting that balance right is very important, I think. Uh, I think if we abandon uh, any kind of longing for the presence of God for evangelistic reasons, there'll have to come another restoration movement later because people will long for the presence of God. So to get that balance right, I think, is very important because we are essentially a people for God. We're his temple where he dwells. And I think we can lean a little too hard uh, away from that if we're not careful so that we are not very consciously the presence of God, but we're very conscious of the outsider. Now, let's win the lost. Let's be sensitive to winning the lost. But we are here to worship God as well. We're here to honor him, to be in his presence. And I think the outsider is impressed with, hey, what, did that, what was that? Is that God? And uh, so if we play down our expectation to encounter him, I think everybody loses out in the end. So those will be some of the things. Terry, we just um, on behalf of everybody here, we just really want to thank you for um, an incredible uh, model of uh, faithfulness that you bring. And actually, for if, if 40 is young, then there's a lot of younger guys uh, that really appreciate that because there's a lot of guys falling on our left and our right. And to um, see you hitting the home straight... I should know, son. In love with Jesus. 